I'm getting ready to continue reading Wanderlust. Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. And it's nine o'clock in the evening or something like that. And I was just thinking, is there any time of the day which isn't suitable for um, walking? And as it says, as uh, Rebecca Solnit says, walking is meandering. So I'm going to continue here. And I'm going to continue talking about a guy called Thoro. T-H-O-R-E-A-U. And I... that Because on page... God, we're only at page 8 of chapter 1 of this book that I have fallen in love with. And I still haven't had made time to find out who on earth is the author. Thoreau himself was both a poet of nature and a critic of society. By the way, I got a dog with me. His famous act of civil disobedience was passive. A refusal to pay taxes to support war and slavery and an acceptance of the night in jail that ensued. And it did not overlap directly with his involvement in exploring and interpreting the local landscape, though he did lead a huckleberrying party the day he got out of jail. In our actions at the test site, the poetry of nature and criticism of society were united in this camping, walking and trespassing as though we had figured out how a burying party could be a revolutionary cadre. It was a revelation to me, the way this act of walking through a desert and across a cattle guard into the forbidden zone could articulate political meaning. And in the course of travelling to this landscape, I began to discover other western landscapes beyond my coastal region, and to explore those landscapes and the histories that had brought me to them. The history of not only the development of the West, but of the romantic taste for walking and landscape. Wow, that reminds me of Wordsworth, doesn't it? The democratic tradition of resistance and revolution. Reminds me of Gandhi. The more ancient history of pilgrimage and walking to achieve spiritual goals. Reminds me of the Camina. By the way, these, uh, these things it's reminded me of is me, not, uh, not Rebecca speaking. I found my voice as a writer in describing all the layers of history that shaped my experiences at the test site. And I began to think and to write about walking in the course of writing about places and their histories. Of course, walking, as any reader of Thoreau's essay, walking, knows inevitably leads into other subjects. Walking is a subject that is always straying into, for example, the shooting stars below the missile guidance station on the northern headlands of the Golden Gate. They are my favourite wildflower. These small magnetic cones with their sharp black points that seem aerodynamically shaped for a flight that never comes, as though they had evolved forgetful of the fact that flowers have stems and stems have roots. The chaparral on both sides of the trail 
watered by the condensation of the ocean fog through the dry months and shaded by the slopes northern exposure was lush while the missile guidance station on the crest always makes me think of the desert and of war these banks below always remind me of the English hedgerows those field borders with their abundance of plants, birds and that idyllic English kind of countryside there were ferns here wild strawberries and tucked under a coyote bush a cluster of white iris in bloom although I came to think about walking I couldn't stop thinking about everything else about the letters I should have been writing about the conversations I'd been having at least when my mind strayed to the phone conversation with my friend Sono that morning I was still on track. Sono's truck had been stolen from her West Oakland studio and she told me that though everyone responded to it as a disaster, she wasn't all that sorry it was gone or in a hurry to replace it. There was joy, she said, to finding that her body was adequate to get her where she was going and it was a gift to develop a more tangible, concrete relationship to her neighbourhood and its residents. We talked about the more stately sense of time one has afoot and on public transit where things must be planned and scheduled beforehand rather than rushed at the last minute and about the sense of place that can only be gained on foot. Many people nowadays live in a series of interiors home, car, gym, office, shops disconnected from each other. On foot, everything stays connected. For while walking, one occupies the spaces between those interiors in the same way one, in the same way one occupies those interiors. One lives in the whole world rather than interiors built up against it. Oh my goodness. One lives in the whole world rather than interiors built up against it. Now I'm striding along a track. Light is fading. To my right hand side are logs, piled up, cut ready for transportation. There are trees, they're from trees, cut around me. My dog is in front, he's doing his business. Beech trees to the right. For, um, pines to the left. Bits of decidua. Not deciduous, my uh, ferns to the left. I'm sort of hoping we don't meet any people. I like to being out here with a book. It's a kind of, <laughs> and especially a book about walking and nature, especially with a writer whose prose is as good, well, not as good. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree, said somebody. And similarly, it's no good me saying this book is as good as the, the trail I'm walking on. But however, let's go on. <sighs> but that's a gorgeous line. One lives in the whole world rather than in interiors built up against it. The narrow trail I had been following came to an end as it rose to meet the old grey asphalt road that runs up 
to the missile guidance station. Stepping from path to road means stepping up to see the whole expanse of the ocean spreading uninterrupted to Japan. <laughs> Reminds me of being on the cliffs of Moher in County Clare in the west of Ireland and looking out and saying, that way lies Greenland or perhaps Maine or uh, Nova Scotia. I'm not much good on the curvature of the earth. The same shock of pleasure comes every time I cross this boundary to discover the ocean again. An ocean shining like beaten silver on the brightest days, green on the overcast ones, brown with the muddy runoff of the streams and rivers, washing far out to sea during winter floods. An opalescent mottling of blues on days of scattered clouds, only invisible on the foggiest days, when the salt smell alone announces the challenge. God, I'm being overcome by the richness of this prose and say to myself, how on earth is this sustained for another 300 pages? And how many years did it take her to write this? And perhaps she's one of these people who as soon as she opens her mouth, out comes a festivity of phonemes or something like that. The day the sea was a solid blue, this day the sea was a solid blue, running towards an indistinct horizon where white mist blurred the transition to cloudless sky. From here on, my route was downhill. I had told Sono about an ad I found in the Los Angeles Times a few months ago that I'd been thinking about ever since. It was for a CD-ROM encyclopedia. And the text that occupied a whole page read, you used to walk across town in the pouring rain to use our encyclopedias. We're pretty confident that we can get your kid to click and drag." End quote. I think it was the kid's walk in the rain that constituted a real education, at least of the senses and the imagination. Perhaps the child with the CD-ROM encyclopedia will stray from the task at hand, but wandering in a book or a computer takes place within more constricted and less sensual parameters. It's the unpredictable incidents between official events that add up to a life, the incalculable that gives it value. Both rural and urban walking have for two centuries been prime ways of exploring the unpredictability and the incalculable but they are now under assault on many fronts. I'm going to stop. I mean, I'm not a machine for reading. This is not an audio book. This, is, this has got to me. I, I started off thinking, well, I'll read a chapter. Or I'll read a bit of a chapter. Perhaps I'll go to the last chapter. <laughs> the absurdity of going to the last chapter. I might as well go to the middle chapter 
because there is no end to this walk. This is a walk through a philosophy of life. This is a walk through a, a spectacle, a pair of spectacles, a whole lens, a whole... This is a walk up a summit from which you can look down from your own summit and look onto people on other summits. Yeah, there's no point in reading anymore for now. I feel the wind in my face. Well, the breeze in my face. I see the dog's tail bobbing. I see the hairs flayed. I see the gorse has lost its color. And I may be about to get very wet. From time to time I've come across a book that feels like as if it's been written especially for me, that it suits my taste, not necessarily that I agree with the ideas but that the language and the, the phrases and the way in which ideas are, if you like, assembled, you know, seems as if you know, they'd, they'd been put together to a design brief that I'd, that I'd given. And I'm sure, you know, everybody's had... Well, no, I'm not sure. Maybe most people have had the experience of reading a book and saying, wow, this is perfect for me. And it could be a detective novel, it could be anything. It could even be a book of poetry, but prose written for you, language language uh, expressed in writing. In the same way, I suppose, that a song can speak. I remember when, I think it was called a song, a song by Johnny Cash called Hurt. When I heard it first, I went, oh my God, this is astonishing. This is, uh, well, astonishing. Yeah, this is special. So now that I've been reading a little bit from Wanderlust. A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. I thought a few minutes ago, perhaps this wonderful beginning to the book, which I've waxed appreciatively about, perhaps this uh, book has a good beginning. But you know, to sustain it for 300 pages, well, that's another matter. You... Uh, to be able to continue in a rich vein of thought and particularly in a rich, I suppose what I would regard as a rich vein of prose, well, that's a very special achievement and can hardly be an accident. Just, and so just as, you know, you can pick up a driver in golf and swing it at a golf ball and connect in a way that sends the ball right down the center of the fairway, perfect trajectory, 
And that may well be the only shot you ever hit on a golf course that works. You know, things can be great by accident. Somebody can sing a song and manage to keep everything in tune. Maybe the only... I've had this experience myself, I have to say. So what I'm going to do, because the light is really fading, and I am walking through the dark part of the wood, there being pines to the left and pines to the right, most of which I don't think are native to, to Ireland. In fact, all of which I'd bet are not native to Ireland. But they're here as a plantation, as a, as a commercial crop. Anyway, that is... I'm going to open the book at random. And I've opened it on page 129. And actually, I'm going to read... I'm going to read a paragraph, right? And uh, that's all, because it's one paragraph taken at random. So let's see what uh, let's see what the author has to say from the bottom of page 128 until about seven lines down the top of 129. The reluctant, no, sorry, let me start again. The resultant book entitled The Thousand Mile Summer is a sort of trial mix made up of bite-size epiphanies, moral lessons, blisters, social encounters, and recounted practical details. He took other walks later, and like Graham, wrote a guidebook, The Complete Walker, still used by backpackers. Oh my goodness, I think I know who he's talking about. Another Englishman, John Hillaby, walked the length of Britain a thousand miles in 1968 and wrote a bestseller about it, as well as several other books about other walks. And I've got to read on because that's fairly... That's journalism. By the time Peter Jenkins set out to walk more than 3,000 miles across the United States in 1973 with National Geographic sponsorship, the cross-country exhibition, Expedition, had become a kind of rite of passage of America, of American manhood. Though by that time, the means were more often a vehicular. Crossing the continent seemed to embrace or encompass it, at least symbolically. The route wrapped around it like a ribbon around a package. The movie Easy Rider, which had recently been released, seemed to draw some of its sensibility from Jack Kerouac's road stories, which themselves often sprawled more like travel books than novels. Kerouac's Dharma Bums recounts how the poet and ecologist Gary Snyder got Kerouac out of the car and into the mountains. Jenkins set out to have social encounters. The America he was looking for was, unlike Muir's, made up of people rather than places. Okay, and the next uh, sentence begins like Wordsworth. Okay, as far as I'm concerned, my appetite for the book is a little 
more wetted than before. Names, of course, anyone can drop names. You throw John Muir into a book, and it says, immediately says to me, Paul, you don't know enough about John Muir. You know about the Sierra Club. You have a story about the Sierra Club. 1896 was the Sierra Club founded two years before the National Trust in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. I'm trying to remember. I have some funny idea that John Muir, actually maybe it was more than that, maybe John Muir was a few more years before that, that he formed, well, John Muir, all I know is that he saved great places in the United States and he helped establish, and he may have done more than help, establish the national parks in the United States. And and there's more to do with John Muir, surely, in this book. And, uh, and by right, yes. I just wonder if Ansel Adams will get a look in. Since Ansel Adams walked out into the wilderness, wild places in Yosemite, okay, he was carrying a camera, but he was walking. He didn't drive up or cycle out there. All the way. I'm not sure he didn't go on some of the way in a in a vehicle. Anyway, there we are. The book is, in my experience, confirmed. I, I, perhaps the reading of this book and the chat I'm doing around it, the surrounding sounds, are 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 distracting from. Well, perhaps uh, Rebecca Solnit. There's more me than Rebecca Solnit in, in the reading. And if somebody doesn't... If I'm not somebody's cup of tea, then they're going to have difficulty finding Rebecca Solnit in what I'm doing. Whereas when Georgie D read the John Fowles book... <laughs> says I, trying to remember, not the Magus, not the French lieutenant's woman, but uh, the one he started in 1960. Never mind, um, it'll come back to me in a minute. And when Robert Neal read A Wood of One's Own or A Wood of My Own, both of them didn't get in the way of the author and they chipped in little pieces well I remember Robert Neal chipping in little pieces I have to say that I remember Georgie D reading it right through Um, but I didn't listen to all of either of them and you know that's an interesting question well the question in my mind is what to do And the answer is, the answer lies in the soil. The answer lies in the soil.
Fanny Craddock who said that once, famously, on BBC Radio. Good night now. As you probably guessed, I'm highly motivated to continue, at least for the time being, reading this book. I hope you're able to make something valuable of it for yourself.